This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Julie Taylor is a writer, creator, and a consultant for over a decade. To me, she's a positivity cheerleader and a realist, and someone whose light is continually brightening my experience on social media with her hilarious reels and deeply thought-provoking shares. Julie's only agenda is to help you do you and feel good while doing it. All of her work has one common goal, to help alleviate the suffering of women by helping them believe that they are inherently good, because it's more fun to believe. Julie, I'm so excited to talk to you today and so grateful that you would just give up your time and be here today. So we met a year ago, I think. It's only been a year. Yeah, it's been a year. Feels like a really long time, but yeah, I think so. Yeah, in person. Well, for me, it feels like less time because I've been following you for longer on Instagram. Yeah, I feel like I've known you for a really long time, but I guess in person, we only met a year ago. Yeah, but we have so many mutual friends that I feel like we kept intersecting and I kept seeing people repost things of yours and for a long time. So it's been a joy to know you even better the last year. But for anyone who is not familiar with you, can you just give a little brief intro of who you are and what you do? Yeah, I never know what to say because I do so many random things and I change my mind a lot. But my name is Julie Taylor. I like to write and share and speak and do stuff online and offline. And so you can find me at the Julie Taylor on Instagram. And I tend to change my mind a lot. So it's fun to come along for the ride. (laughs) But you're a really inspirational person that I feel like a lot of women look to for not even just inspiration, because I feel like there are a lot of inspiring people on Instagram. But I love that you are also really good about being real and kind of talking about the nitty gritty of what's actually going to bring you happiness and results in life. And so I actually would love to start off with one of my favorite things I've ever heard from you, which is... At least I think you said this is like one of, if not your life mantra, it's more fun to believe. Mm -hmm. And so I would love to hear the story. I mean, I've heard the story, but I would love for you to retell the story of why that resonated with you and why you continue to have that as a mantra in your life. Yeah, I would love to share and thank you for your kind words. It's more fun to believe actually came to me. It was said by the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team in 2011. So in 2011, the Cardinals won the World Series in like a crazy way. They were down a bunch of games. And then even in that final game, they were down a ton of runs. And they just had an insane comeback. And I'm from St. Louis. Originally, my family were huge Cardinals fans. So we were all just losing our mind. My dad still owns that series on DVD. And we like pull it out. (laughs) Because it was just it was a really big deal for us. And so when they after that game, they were interviewing Tony LaRussa, who's the manager of the Cardinals at the time. And They just said, you know, are you just shocked? Like, did you even see that coming? And he's like, yeah, I saw it coming. And they were like, how, how? Like you, you couldn't have held hope through that. You were down so far, you were down. And he's like the most chill guy, like very dry delivery. And he just like shrugged and was like, well, it's more fun to believe. And I have never forgot those words. And back then in 2011, it hit different. (laughs) And then it's come, it's come to me multiple times 
through my life. I have left my faith twice and, and come back. And when I come back, I always come back to it's more fun to believe. And when I look at the difference, not just in faith, but in relationships and in life, I've just really come to live by this. It's more fun to believe. It's more fun to believe in yourself. It's more fun to believe in other people. For me, it's more fun to believe in God. It's more fun to believe because nothing changes, not believing and doubting and living in the negativity doesn't actually change the outcome. This just intangible way of saying it's more fun to believe. Like I don't have to give a bunch of evidence of why necessarily just for me and my life it's more fun to believe. So he said that in 2011, but since then I have taken it as my own. I don't think he would mind because it was just a past <laughs> comment in an interview, but I've just kind of made it my life mantra. And it's taken a lot of different shapes through the years over the last decade, as I have gone in and out of faith since hearing those words, but it's something that has never, never left me. Oh, I love that so much. So if you don't mind, I would love to go deeper on that because I feel like I heard this version, but I haven't heard some of the backstory of these things that you referenced with. Let's start with your faith. Yeah. So it's nobody's heard it because it's not something that I share about. And I really appreciate platforms like yours because I don't really want to share everything on my own platform about this stuff. But I love having these more intimate conversations because it's pretty like vulnerable stuff and stuff that I I'm not necessarily like going to blast all over the Internet because it's it's scary, you know, Sherry. Yeah, and, and if you don't want to go down that road. No, no, we can... no, no, absolutely. Okay. Podcasts, I actually have on other podcasts. I always like, I don't know what happens to me when I go on podcasts, but suddenly I'm like, yeah, let's just talk about anything. It's like one yeah. separation or something that makes Like, let's take our bras off. Let's just be let's open. Just about it. Why not? It's yeah. Not that, it's not that I don't want to talk about it. I think that it's whenever you put something out in the public, you have to be ready for feedback on it. Yes. And it's not something on my platform that I'm like, yeah, come at me in my comment section and talk to me about it, you know, because it's like totally. still new for me and it's still fresh for me, especially this last time. So I originally kind of left my faith around that time, 2011, <laughs> 2012 mm. of when okay. I first heard that quote. And it was, I had my first baby in 2010 and it was really hard. I had crazy postpartum depression. It was just a really, really rough experience. And I didn't see it coming. I had never struggled with mental illness prior to having children. I had always been pretty just stable and normal and fine. And then when I had that first baby, it just turned my world upside down. And because I had been raised in an LES faith with kind of taught me that motherhood was like this divine calling and this thing that I was supposed to be made for and be so good at. And then to have that jarring experience of this was actually the worst thing that's ever happened to me, right? That's kind of how it felt at that time. It really caused a huge faith crisis for me of just, I don't believe any of these things that I've been taught because if you, if this is what I'm supposed to be the best at, and it's this terrible for me, then who am I? And what's my worth and what's my mm, value? And so relatable. Yeah. It just, it made me question a lot of things about like, what is my identity if I hate this? And if I'm terrible at this, and if this ruined my life, like that's, yeah. and then there's so much shame that comes with postpartum depression too, of just what kind of mom am I, if I feel this way about motherhood. And I remember so distinctly that year, the first year of my son's life, if anyone told me they were pregnant, I could not even respond positive. I would just be like, I'm so sorry. Like I, I didn't see 
how it could be a good thing. And I felt so duped and tricked of like, why does everyone say congratulations when this is actually like the worst thing that could ever happen to you? Like, mm. it just was such a battle that whole first year. And then I had another baby two years after him. It was after that one that I actually got postpartum depression again, but it manifested differently. That's the mm. crazy thing about postpartum depression. And I think why you can get it multiple times and still not realize that you have it. So after my son, I eventually realized and I started to get help. But then after I had my second child, I got it again, but it manifested in completely different ways. So because it didn't look like the first time, I just kept thinking like, no, that's not what this is. That's not what this is. This is different. Hmm. But it just kept me in this really low place emotionally and mentally. And I, I kind of just blamed it all on my faith. Like, why did I get married so young? Why did I have these kids? Like, if this religion hadn't taught me to do all of these things, I wouldn't be in this terrible space right now. And I just was really like, definitely trapped in victim mentality and just putting everything on the religion that I had been raised in. Mm -hmm. And then I had a third baby. <laughs> and it was that the night that I found out it was Christmas Eve, and I found out I was pregnant with my third baby. And I it was just the rock bottom. I was like, either me or this child can't survive this. I can't do this again. I can't like, this can't happen. And that was like a very jarring experience for me. And so it kind of like snapped me out of the cloud that I had been in. And I was like, okay, I, I have to get help. So I actually started like a 12 step program and did a 12 step program for that whole pregnancy and doing those 12 steps is how God came back into my life. So it was different than my faith. It was just like a non-denominational higher power. And yeah. I hadn't prayed in three years, but then suddenly I had the sponsor in this program who was like, you need to pray every day. And I hadn't accepted any type of engagement with God for three years, but I suddenly through this program needed to. And my sponsor was not of my faith. And it was actually a beautiful way to access God again through a different access point because I was so angry and had so much resentment toward the God that I knew. So it gave me this other access point. I'm sorry, I'm telling like a decade story really quickly. So there's probably- No, this is awesome. <laughs> Keep going. But I spent that, I spent about two years like working through the 12 steps and really accepting like God back into my life. And at that point we moved away. My husband graduated, he got a PhD. So we left Utah. We were living in Utah at the time. And when that third baby was like nine days old, we moved across the country to a place that we had never been. So it was, I had three kids under five. I had to quit my wow. job. I was a hairstylist at the time and I wasn't licensed outside of Utah. So I quit my job and we went to Ohio and I didn't know anybody. And the combination of having accepted God back in my life and then needing the community of my church group and like diving yeah. in. And then the people of Ohio, specifically that area, they just... They changed me like the way they just came in. I get emotional every time I talk about them. They showed me what it was like to live like Christ. They showed up. They didn't care who I was. They just embraced me and they loved me and they loved my kids. And I didn't have anyone. I didn't have any family. And they just saved me. We lived there for two years and it was a really faith promoting time for me. And so I, I came back. That was kind of my comeback. And I used the it's more fun to believe because I just saw this transformation in my life of like, look how much better it is when God is here and look how much better it is when I just dig in and let this community of people hold me up and, and then I can serve other people. And so that's when I first started using that. It's more fun to believe. But I think the thing that I've learned is that we can't get complacent in our, mm. in anything. Right. Yeah. I think it's just like, I always use the comparison of if you take medication for mental illness, 
very quickly, you'll start to convince yourself you no longer need the medication for the mm. anxiety. So you don't have anxiety anymore, but right. it's the patient that's helping you, right? Right. I kind of did the same thing with faith and God. I'm just like, I'm good. My life is good now. Like, I'm fine. I'm doing great. I don't need this anymore. And mm. then we moved away from Ohio to Connecticut. And it's kind of funny how these places kind of hold markers in my life for things. But our whole Connecticut phase, I just really went back into doubting and questions. And I had a lot of issues with things that the church was promoting and saying and doing. And I just was like, I can't align with this. And I just, I went to really like a really dark existential type of place where this time I was like, it's not just the LDS faith. It's God in general. Like God mm. wouldn't do this. God wouldn't create yeah. things this way. And the, the patriarchal nature of things, I just really went deep into like the anger and the I was just so mad. I was so mad and so resentful. And I just remember laying awake at night and just feeling like none of this is real, like nothing, just really dark, dark places. And I, I remember I would have to take breaks and this is still something that I always advise people to do who are going through like faith crisis or faith transition, however you want to label it is like, you got to set it down sometimes because it's really, really heavy and reconstructing and digging through all of this core stuff it's really jarring. It's really heavy and it's really hard. And sometimes it's okay to just say, I don't know. I don't know right now. And I, I just have to live my life. I can't sort through all of this. And so I, yeah. I kind of do that periodically. And then long story long, cause I'm <laughs> long winded here, but we ended up moving back to Utah and I just went through some, I had another baby about 18 months ago and the pregnancy was I watched you go through your last pregnancy and I just felt for you so much of like that. I had the preterm labor. I had diabetes. I got Bell's palsy. I had placenta previa, like everything. I was like on bed rest for months. You know, the drill, like it's, yeah. it messes with you. Right. And that was really, really hard. And then some other things in my life just kind of blew up and I just went through this really hard time. And it was kind of at that another, a different kind of rock bottom, but a, a, a rock bottom where I just thought like, I can't handle this on my own. And I ended up turning to Christ and getting through it that way. And the last year has been building my life through Christ and really just accepting that faith back into my life and remembering that it's more fun to believe and choosing, choosing faith again. And I think sometimes that's the other thing I like about the it's more fun to believe is sometimes I think that we need all of this evidence or everything has to make sense and mm. we can't have any dissonance and we can't. And I just had to get really comfortable in this space where I I can't make sense of everything. I don't know all the answers. There's still stuff that I don't actually fully align with or agree with. But at the end of the day, I'm choosing to believe because it's more yes. fun to believe and I'm choosing it. Once I treat it like that, it doesn't feel as jarring when like doubts come up or conflict comes up or that dissonance really shows up because I don't have to solve it. I'm just making the choice of, oh, I'm, I'm believing this. So you can throw anything at me and I'm not like, oh no, what? It's just kind of like, yeah, but I'm choosing this. And I think at some point faith can be a choice and belief yeah. can be a choice. And that can make some people uncomfortable, but that's how I have found peace is just, this is what I'm choosing. And I don't have to have the strongest testimony in the world and be able to share X, Y, and Z, but I'm choosing this. And when I choose this and live this way, my life is better. And that's something that other people can't really dispute for me. So, yeah, 
that's the whole whole thing. (laughs) So good. Well, and you know, it's interesting. My husband and I were talking just last night about choice in marriage too. And that I, I didn't even know this until last night, but apparently when Neil sat down with my dad and talked, he actually had to do this twice because we broke off our engagement, got re-engaged. The first of the two times when he asked or talked to my dad about marrying me, my dad said, Neil was like, we had this amazing spiritual experience and we know we're supposed to get married. And my dad was like, well, that's great, but marriage is a choice. So you're going to have to choose this more than once. And Neil said, like, in my infancy of understanding marriage, I was so offended. Like, how could you say that this is going to be a choice? Like God revealed it to me. (laughs) And now that we've been married for whatever it is, like, I think it'll be 12 years this summer. It's like, yeah, you do have to choose that over and over. So, and what you're saying applies perfectly to that too, that it's more fun to believe and that you probably have a lot better marriage if you're, or, or relationships, believing in people and, and just having that positive outlook, which I feel like you're such a champion for in everything that you share. Well, I feel like it's important to frame things as a choice too, because it Mm. keeps us out of that victim mentality. Like at the end of the day, literally everything is a choice. Like you might not feel like it, but you might be choosing to take care of your children in a certain way because you actually value that. But it can feel sometimes like, well, no, I have to, because I have these kids. So I have to take care of them. (laughs) You actually don't, you, you could leave, you could. And I know that sounds dramatic and kind of silly, but I think when we start to frame things in our life as not a choice and being trapped and that's how we fuel that like resentment and negativity and victimhood. And when we just understand that everything is a choice. And I think that the same happened with my faith. The same has happened in my marriage, the arc of my marriage. Like my, my marriage now is such a happy, it's the happiest part of my life. It's the best part of my life. It was not always that way. Do you hear the story I just told? Obviously there was some hardship there. Yeah. And now it's just such a source of like light and joy and peace and comfort in my life. But it's because it's a choice over and over and over again. And I got married very young. And there was a lot of time that I spent framing that as I was the victim of of this. Like, well, if I had been older and if I, I haven't, you know, just all of these things that we love to assign the hypothetical to defend our thesis, but we actually mm. don't know what would have happened. So, so I true. could have gotten married 10 years later and who knows what else, like, I can tell whatever story I want, but when we frame things as a choice, marriage is a choice. Our faith is our choice. Our jobs are a choice. Our children are a choice. Like everything is a choice and how we handle it is a choice. And that can, I sometimes roll my eyes at it. And sometimes it's empowering. That's how all personal development Mm -hmm. is for me. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, sometimes I'm like, shut up, but (laughs) it depends on the day. You know, it depends on the day, but I think it's important to stay in that positivity to work through things. Yes. So good. And so well said. I really want to go back to something that you talked about a second ago too, where you said that, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I can say it quite as perfectly as you, but you were talking about kind of maintaining and not just thinking that like, I think you related it to taking an antidepressant that you have to maintain things that you want to stay strong in. So what were some of the changes that you made in your faith journey that allowed you to stay strong. Or I, I love that I reviewed Bonnie Corden's most recent talk and she talked about spiritual muscle memory. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the things that you did that were effective for you in that journey? You know, in our faith, we can spend time at the temple Mm -hmm. and just kind of these like normal rituals of like read your scriptures and pray and go to the, like, I just was really resistant to it. Cause I was like, this is stupid. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything. And I actually just, this last Sunday was talking with some friends and I, I thought in the last year I have 
started spending time. I had never read the Book of Mormon before. (laughs) So I've been reading it now and I'm almost done with it the first time. And I've never read the Bible before. And I was actually, I've been reading the Bible, just like spending time in scriptures. And then I have been spending a lot of time in our temples and I've been spending a lot of time in prayer and just really setting intentions to like invite Christ into my daily life of like, what does it mean to follow Christ? How can I show up as a follower of Christ? How would I respond, react as a follower of Christ? And I was thinking, I I get really caught up in wanting like actionable, actionable things. And I've worked in the personal development world for the last decade. So Mm -hmm. I do a lot of like ghostwriting and writing for other people. And they always want those actionable takeaways, right? Like, and every keynote with your five takeaways and, and every, like you want your five things that people can go do. And so I think that my brain thinks like that. And on Sunday, I was talking with some friends and about coming back to faith and what faith does for us. And I, mm-hmm. I just had the thought of maybe we need to stop looking for the tangible. Maybe it's all the intangibles that we need to start counting because I can't really tell you, Corinne, how all of the like, yeah, I guess I could pull out some data of like how my life has improved in the last year because I've been doing X, Y or Z and inviting Christ into my life. But more than that, it's just the general trajectory of my life. It's trending upwards. Things are better and circumstances aren't even better, but my personal peace is better and my Mm -hmm. ability to handle these things. It's like weightlifting, like the weight doesn't get lighter, but you get stronger, right? Yeah. Circumstances of my life haven't actually drastically improved. It's Mm -hmm. just my ability to ride it out has and the peace that I find regardless of what's going on around, around me has. So I think- as we do these things, whatever faith you subscribe to and whatever habits are helpful for you, look for the intangible. Don't wait for the evidence and the data of like, well, this problem got solved and this got better and this got better because usually you'll just see trends over time of things shifting or changing. And if we don't take a minute and intentionally assign the improvement to the habits that we've been doing, it's easy to feel like these habits are useless or not really helping us or doing anything. So I think for me, it's been really important to, yes, kind of put those daily habits back into my life, but also take time to stop and acknowledge like, Hey, my kids are fighting slightly less than they used to. And that's something (laughs) that I've really been wanting. Yeah. And the only thing that's changed is that I'm spending time in the Bible, right? Like we can see kind of results from these, but we might be the ones who have to build that bridge because it probably won't be tangible data that we can provide evidence for of when I pray, totally. this happens. That Right. Because it's not a vending machine. It's not a right. put in a dollar and get out a cookie. Like right. just, it doesn't work exactly that way. But at the same time, I completely subscribe to what you're talking about, where assigning the success to these daily habits, I that's there's a lot of power in that. So I would love to talk also about shame because I feel like you do a really good job of talking about shame. And for some reason, it triggered a memory to me when you said, I haven't read the Book of Mormon and I've just been doing that this last year. So I've talked about this on my Instagram a lot that I hadn't read the Book of Mormon until I was 28 years old. And I had a lot of shame around that. I kind of felt like a fraud. Like I had said my whole life, like, oh, I believe in this church and I 
am such a strong believer and I still I still label myself as a believer and I feel like that's one of my spiritual gifts but I had a lot of shame that surrounded that and it almost kept me from pursuing like a true study and like intense read of the Book of Mormon and once I did it I was like oh my gosh what have I been waiting for it this is so amazing this is why people say what they say about reading this book and it has changed my life since but it kept me back for a long time because I kind of felt so embarrassed. There was this weird like psychology of, well, since I haven't done it, I'll just like quietly keep not doing it. (laughs) Does that make sense? So I would love for you to help me just unpack what you teach people about shame because I think you do it so beautifully. I think shame is an interesting thing because it just, it can keep us trapped more than anything else in the world. And the quieter we keep it, it's just like you said, I'm just going to quietly keep not doing it. Mm-hmm. As soon as you say something out loud, the shame flies away because you kind of realize how not a big deal it is. And even when it is yeah. a big deal, sharing it and not because keeping the secret of shame is actually heavier than the shame itself. So the longer that we carry the shame of something, the bigger and more intense it gets when if we set it free and share it, then suddenly 90% of that burden is gone. Cause you might still have like the guilt or the shame or the discomfort of your behavior, but you're all, not also keeping it from everyone. Cause there's nothing worse than like living this life where you think someone's going to find me out. So someone's gonna, yes. like that. It doesn't, someone's going to find out I'm a fraud. Someone's going to call yeah. me out. And yeah, I actually had, and I've shared this experience on some other podcasts before, but I had an experience when I was 17 where I was actually disfellowshipped from my church for some things that had been going on and it was humiliating and it was so shameful. And I remember going going home to my high school bedroom that night and just feeling like, man, what, what in the world? Like, this is terrible. This is terrible. And I just heard a voice so strongly say like, they are wrong. You are good. And Mm. that changed everything for me. So I feel like that was such a gift to receive at 17 because every single thing that I have done since that day has been in an effort because it was like, they are wrong. You are good. And now go help other people believe that too. And every single thing that I have done, I've been a hairstylist. I've been a writer. I've I've done all these things. All of it has been in an effort to help women specifically understand that they are good. You are inherently good. And God loves you as cheesy and platitude as that sounds. That is my deepest core belief. And even through leaving faith and coming back to faith, I, I don't really care. I don't really care if you're a believer. I don't really care how you feel or what you think. I think you're good. I think mm-hmm. you're inherently good. And I apply that in my parenting as well. I think children, we're all inherently good. And when you operate from an understanding of, I believe you're inherently good, so I'm going to believe it for myself too. To me, separating the understanding of my worth as a human is fixed. There's nothing that I can do to make it better or worse. Yes. Self-esteem will go up and down. I'm going to do good things and bad things. I'm going to cause harm and I'm going to help people. I'm going to do it all because we're all human. So it's going to go like this, but our worth is unchangeable. And when you truly are able to internalize that and it takes some work so you can borrow, borrow my belief until you can get there because it is, 
it's hard to believe about yourself, especially if you've been living in shame or if you've been programmed to think that you're inherently bad or that, yeah. you know, that it's, it's, these are deep, deep things, deep work to do. But when you can get there and really trust it, then you're able to take accountability for when you screw up without it making you think that you should die and that you're the worst yeah. person to ever live because you can know like, okay, my worth is here. I screwed up. So what can I do to, you know, fix it and let's go and let's do our, let's keep doing our best, but our worth is unchangeable. And that to me has been the the best thing to stop shame in its tracks, because I know that when I do something bad or when I screw up or when I hurt someone, it doesn't actually mean that I'm terrible. It just means that I need to fix this. And so then you really can't go to shame over it because you take accountability. And as soon as you take accountability and do something about it, then shame can't exist there. You still feel bad. You feel grief. You feel remorse. You feel those things, but you don't think that you are bad because shame convinces you that you are bad. Yes. And if you refuse to believe that, then you don't go there as often. Wow, Julie, that's so good. And especially that that experience that you shared, that's super powerful. And I feel like on a micro level, most of us experience something like that in our childhood or in our adolescent years where we walked away from a situation where someone evaluated us and then we walked away saying, I am bad or I am worthless or I should just not exist anymore or whatever. Even if that wasn't the explicit message, I feel like so many of us internalize things like that that are totally untrue. And so what you said is super powerful. And I totally agree with you too, that we are good, that you are good, that children are good. In fact, the other day I saw, I don't know if you saw this, but on Ashley Reeves stories that she was filming something completely different and that Justin in the background as a principal, they were in his office and one of the kids said, dad, why are there so many bad kids? And he said, there are no bad kids. They're just bad choices. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's so good. Yeah, principal thought that way. If, if only every human, not just principal. Right? We all really thought that way. And I think that's been, I want to intentionally use my influence in any of my relationships that I have. I say influence, meaning like in my home and with my friendships, like if people can leave interactions with me feeling better about themselves, feeling more hopeful, that's actually what will create change. It's never, ever through shame. And I always say that like shame works actually for motivation for a minute, but it has an expiration date. So we can shame ourselves into submission for a minute. And so it'll trick us into thinking this works like, yeah, I'm doing it, but it has an expiration date. Cause it's not like a good enough intrinsic. It, it runs out. I think it's learning how to more quickly shift out of shame motivation into deeper motivations and understandings to to keep things sustainable because shame is not a sustainable form of motivation. Amen to that. Oh, that's so good. Okay. One of the most recent posts that you did was on toxic positivity and how you think that's a myth. So I would love for you to just delve into that a little bit too, because I keep seeing that everywhere. And I agree with you that toxic positivity really are we really gonna put those what is it called when you have two things that I I know what you're talking like just opposing oxymoron that's what I was trying to think of thank you my children for stealing my brain oxymoron yeah so here's the thing about toxic positivity I it's like a buzzword right and buzzwords I I just it's hard to be on the internet because you almost know you've been on the internet long enough like there's a formula like you know exactly what Mm -hmm. to say to make something go well you know exactly what to say to get the feedback that you want like it's kind of like a, a machine in a little bit like then when instead you decide to say the thing that you know maybe won't be popular that's a lot more uncomfortable 
So this idea of toxic positivity, the idea is real, but it's completely mislabeled and it's given positivity, this bad reputation. And I am such a deep believer in light and good and positivity and that that is always the right choice. I don't believe that negativity is ever the right choice. And what I think has bothered me so much about this toxic positivity is it's just completely mislabeled. And Mm. as soon as something becomes toxic, it ceases to be positive. That's no longer positive. So I feel like people are using it as someone, a tragedy happens and someone comes in and they say, look at the bright side though, or everything <laughs> like that's actually dismissive, yeah, condescending and not helpful. Yes. So those, that's not actually positivity, like coming in and dismissing someone's feelings or bulldozing. Let's not call that positivity. It's not toxic. Call it gaslighting. That's yeah. gaslighting. That's dismissal. That's, that's negativity. That, that's not yeah. positivity. True positivity hold space for darkness and pain. You can sit with someone in a lot of discomfort and that's the positive choice. And saying in that post, I shared the story of my brother passed away and I was driving to my friend's house who had just had a baby pass away. And this was years and years ago. So I called my dad on the drive and I said, I don't, I was like 20. I I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, what do you say? What do you do? I don't know. I'm driving to her house. And my dad just said, there is no bright side. There's no good right now. Don't pretend like there is. And I've just always remembered those words because there was no good. There's no bright side. Her baby just passed away. There's nothing good about that. And she can find good in it five years from now, or that's not for me to to point out for her. So in that moment, the positivity, the positive choice was to say, man, there's no good. This is awful. Yeah. That was the positive choice because that's the loving action that holds space for someone that will allow them to move through the darkness. Right. That's, that's compassion. Positive. Yes. That's mm-hmm. that's positivity. And so I get very on my soapbox about labeling these things as toxic positivity when it's not positivity at all. And I think that the message of choosing negativity to avoid toxic positivity is completely false. And it's just, we need to understand what actual positivity is. And that is always meeting people where they are and providing them what they need to move through the hard stuff, I think. Yeah, so true and so well said. And I I feel like your unpacking of that is makes so much sense because sometimes you hit you get hit with something on the internet, like you said, and you kind of feel like, oh, like maybe I'm doing it wrong. And it, you tap into that shame and then you feel like, I've been trying to be a good person and trying to be positive about everything, but maybe I'm doing it wrong. What you're explaining, I think, gives so much light and truth to both sides of it and that there can be light and darkness and that sitting with people and giving space for people's feelings and at the same time labeling like that proper behavior as positive and right and good, it just makes so much more sense of all of it. So thank you for that. I don't think that positivity ever shames. I feel like with parenting, one of the things that I'm always trying to do with my kids is discipline and instilling that. And I feel like there's a lot of loss of that in our current world of get something for nothing and that discipline is old school, but you are a champion of that. So I would love for you to talk about that for a minute. Yeah, I feel like I'm just like a really big downer. We're going to talk about discipline and no. No, I love I love the topic of discipline personally. Like fires me up. Yeah, I I well I'm the same because I've seen the power of it in my life and I've seen 
how the hard way is often the actual way that will bring true peace and joy. And I think that there's a lot of narratives right now that like life should be easy and that we Mm. shouldn't have to engage in hard things. And if things are hard, you should opt out. And that we're, when we're in the flow, things should be effortless. And I just don't think that that's realistic. (laughs) And I think that life is hard and requires a lot of hard work. And I also, I think one of the things that I've experienced over the last year is I've experienced some of the most painful things in my life. I've also seen more joy get carved out. Like as you do the harder things, as your capacity for hard increases, your capacity for joy increases. And that Mm -hmm. more like true fullness of real joy really comes into existence because I always think about like sitting next, sitting on the beach, sitting next to the pool with a drink is fun for a minute. It may be fun for a whole week, even. <laughs> I can definitely do that for a whole week and be really a, happy. I would take a week. But what if you were there for six months? What if you were no. there for a year? It's kind of like, you'll probably relate to this when people would say like, oh, you're on bed. Like actually bed rest sounds so nice. I wish somebody would put me on bed rest and I would be like, oh, it's fun for a day or three or maybe five. Uh, it's not fun for six months. When I did go on bed rest, I think I had a good time for a week. I think I did have fun for a week of like, I'm going to watch shows and like all of the stress of my life is kind of like not on me right now. And, and then after a week, you just start to be like, get me out of here. I want to be helpful. These responsibilities that I can't do, I would give anything to fulfill. Like there's that flip. And I think that's kind of where we get things wrong of, yes, we should sit by a pool and you should get to enjoy life and you should love your life and you should get to feel good. And things Mm -hmm. should sometimes get to feel like you're in the flow and they're effortless. But you can't stay there all the time. And that actually wouldn't bring happiness. Yeah. It's just tricky because training yourself to choose the harder choice in the moment is hard, especially as adults, because we don't have to. Like kids get put into more situations where like this is what's expected of them and they have to. Like as grownups, like you can decide to get takeout and not make dinner for your family. Like that's that's that choice is yours. Like, <laughs> and I'm not villainizing takeout. I just, there are a million choices a day where like we kind of have the option to opt out of it. Like, yeah, yeah we could just do the easier thing or nobody is like making me get up in the morning and go for my walk. Like nobody's here. Like we got to go walking. Like nobody makes me do anything, right? I, I could use that. I need that. I know, I know because it's hard. It's yeah. hard to make the disciplined choice. But I think, I actually, I'm working with a client right now and something that she really struggled with was she didn't like to choose discipline because anytime she let herself down, it was just so much shame Mm. and so disappointing. So she said, if I never try for discipline, if I had never tried for that structure, then I never disappoint myself. And so we took it back to that same conversation we just had of the worth. Your worth is, your worth is fixed and you can't change if when you don't do what you say you're going to do, there is going to be disappointment. You're going to be disappointed in yourself. That's not something that we can change. That consequence is non-negotiable, but we can trust our worth, even though we feel disappointed in ourselves and we can try again tomorrow. I think that it's bringing worth into that conversation. And then also showing up for yourself. Whenever I'm working with people to try to establish discipline in their life, the first place we start is just doing what you say you're going to do. And so we set the goal so low of like, today I'm going to go to Swig and I'm going to get a Diet Coke and I'm going to do it. Check. (laughs) Check. (laughs) Literally, or I'm going to play Wordle today. Like something so small and that's something you even like doing just to start getting that habit of I do what I say I'm going to do. Because when you start feeling that reinforcement of like, I followed through, 
I showed up for myself. I did what I said I was going to do because especially in adult life, discipline is primarily when we don't have it, we're only betraying ourselves. We're only letting ourselves down because most of us keep our commitments to everyone else and we show up everywhere else. If someone's going to take the hit, it's ourselves. I'm the one who's not going to do what I need to do because I'm going to do it for everybody else. And that really starts to take a hit at your self-esteem. It just Mm -hmm. goes down and down and down. Self-esteem is something you have to, it's built through doing esteemable acts. You have to build your self-esteem. And every time you don't show up for yourself, it's taking a hit. So I think sometimes we shy away from, if I just don't set any expectations, then I can't let myself down. But then what are we living for? So I know I'm, I'm all over the place there, but I feel like that's so good. Something that you're wanting to instill in your life and teach to your children you got to start in a really realistic place because if you haven't followed through once in the last year and then you suddenly give yourself a 12-hour schedule of I'm going to do this, I'm going to eat this way, and I'm going to move here, and I'm going to accomplish, you're going to fail. I'm going to do 75 hard. Yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) You're going to fail. You're going to let yourself down. So like baby step it. And then you'll see your capacity grows to where you are doing boom, 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 boom. And you do it every day and you show up for yourself every day. But you got to set like attainable goals in between here and there. So first start by going to swig once a day and then start just building that habit because it is just like a muscle that you have to work out. And as you do it, your capacity grows and you can be more and more and more disciplined and you'll start to see the payoff really quick because that feeling of showing up for yourself and doing the thing, even when you didn't want to do it, it, it's like a natural high. You start to just feel better than everyone. And it's kind of fun to feel superior to other people for a minute, you know, like... (laughs) I got up at five. I'm better than everyone. Right. Like, that's, so I think that it's just those baby steps. And so rather than seeing as like disciplined people do X, Y, and Z, like disciplined people show up for themselves. That's the difference. They do what they say they're going to do. So start doing what you say you're going to do for yourself because you already do it for other people. So start doing it for yourself. So good. Gosh, I'm going to start. I wish I had a swig to start with. I don't have one close by. That's a, like, but- a problem. Is that also why I write down, I love to write my to-do list and I write things that I've already done? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So I can check three things off and feel That's like I've accomplished something? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yes. Julie, what do you feel like if there's one message you want the people listening to this episode to remember, what do you want that one message to be? I mean, it's cheesy and predictable, but I think it's that you are good. And that it's more fun to believe. You are good. And when you believe you are good, you get to believe other people are good too. And when you believe in yourself, you get to believe in other people too. And that positivity and that faith in yourself and others, that creates change in your relationship, in your families, in your life, even in your work. That's how we're going to create change is by choosing light and choosing good and choosing belief. Beautiful. Thank you so much for all this today. I just... Gosh, I love it. I'm just fired up. I feel like I want to go conquer the world. So where can people find you, Julie, if they want to continue to follow and be inspired by you and receive more of your goodness? <laughs> you can find me on Instagram, just the Julie Taylor, the one and only. Just kidding. There's so many of me, but the Julie Taylor on Instagram. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so, so much, much for Julie. having me. This is so fun. So fun. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode. Oh, 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 oh,